0: Aside from the ways in which you have already experienced the effects of the crowdsourcing economy, I hope today's episode brought you further insight on the various components that have created this rapidly growing industry—one that life today just wouldn't feel the same without. This has been Along for the Ride. I'm your host, Emily Glavin. Thank you so much for joining us, and have a wonderful rest of your week. To see that global economic integration will require the sharing economy to play an increasingly prominent role. Our research looks at the current state of the sharing economy, the economic, technological, social, and political factors that influence its rise, and we also made predictions about its growth in the next few years. But in essence, the emergence of the sharing economy has presented a tremendous amount of unforeseen challenges for consumers, incumbent businesses, regulators, and most specifically policymakers alike. Which, as a result of the unforeseen landscape that constitute or that constitute the economy, the most critical challenge for the industry to address are the concerns that the platforms may not have the ability to manage their supply and demand chains without relying on enforced regulations to protect their workers' rights and secure access to underutilized resources instead of overworking resources that are already being pushed to their limits. The sharing economy poses a variety of challenges to public lawyers These models mentioned prior. People who use these platforms interact with existing regulatory frameworks in often unexpected ways, causing calls for modified or just new types of regulation altogether, which inherently means the sharing economy platforms face some of the same challenges faced by taxi cabs and hotels in the early days of they. Know, we're seeking to determine how to classify and regulate those platforms as they were newly emerging in the past. Now, most state and local regulators have currently resolved these threshold issues with sharing economy companies, subject to parallel, generally easier regulatory regimes, and regulatory classification of gig economy services is really just one of the most contentious issues, Uh, aside from these generally easier regulatory regimes currently resolved and uh, agreed to by federal legislators. Regulatory classification, with its contentiousness in society currently, is really just about Determine determining what is the status of providers on platforms. Are they independent contractors or are they employees? So, the sharing economy providers may face a significant tax consequence as a, on a basis of whether or not they are employees or contractors, which definitely offers motivation for them to have them serve as contractors. And that kind of connects with the push from Uber for the California Proposition 22, which exempted them from having to declare their workers as employees. So the sharing economy poses a number of legal questions when even highlighting that instance in the state of California, including whether those providing services facilitated through platform businesses like lyft grubhub postmates uber again Uh, whether or not these are our employees or if they're independent contractors and whether or not they should be compensated as such so to kind of reference whether or not this argument has merit legally we look to the court's subjective approach in determining whether or not you are a independent contractor or a employee according to the law, which it may vary based on the relevant federal or state statutes involved, but they typically include things such as the minimum wage and overtime, anti-discrimination protections, workers' compensation, unemployment insurance, collective bargaining rights, and other employment-related regulations. However, most courts look for evidence that a provider of services is able to control someone's work. Analyzing factors such as requirements, tools, instrumentation, location, duration of the relationship, ability to assign additional projects to the hired party, when and how long the hired party can work, and how much they are paid, whether the work is a part of their regular business, whether the hiring party has a business, and the terms of the employee's benefits or lack thereof, and the tax treatment of the hiring party. So there are instances when statutes provide more detailed guidance to assist in determining unemployment relationships, often to ensure, you know, a broad coverage, but workers have contended that sharing economy companies control many, if not the majority of the most crucial aspects of how these providers are operating on these platforms. So, these aspects include the fees providers charge, which again, they have, you know, as a as a service worker you have no control over the performance standards, the pay rates, and other aspects traditionally tied to employment relationships. So while in response, according to platform companies, because providers determine when, where and how long they work, they should be considered independent contractors as that kind of the traditional basis of what it means to be an independent contractor, however, courts and government agencies have not reached a consensus on these arguments, and platform companies have responded in several states by trying to legislate the status of independent contractor providers, which again has been successful in several states as has been named in California throughout the duration of this episode. So why did tech shape the development of the sharing economy in this way? Because without a doubt, technology is also changing the ways in which work everywhere is carried out. The adoption of newer and more efficient methods of performing work now renders some of the old ones obsolete, and the effects of this have completely altered people's Mentalities at work and at home, too. So disruptions have occurred in, in different industries, like manufacturing, service industries, and a, and a really variety of other areas that have been kind of awaiting this period of innovation for quite some time when looking at history. And this disruption would, I think, generally be overlooked or been looked at with suspicion or unwelcoming attitudes in the past, and even recent past. However, just within the past 20 years and the technology boom of the 90s and this rapid evolution of technology we've seen recently, people nowadays are used to frequent changes and updates and honestly, prefer them as opposed to using something that's outdated or inefficient and maybe one of the older innovative technologies that has slowed down and is no longer keeping up to see with what you're used to. So it is making life much easier, but at the same time, it is disrupting the business environment tremendously, and it has done so by elevating the importance of an online reputation, and providing opportunities for flexibility in workplaces where there was no options enough before, and lastly, it really has redefined the essence of patent laws in general and what a service truly is. Beneficial for you and your communities and your society as a whole. When looking at the cultural components impact on the market sharing economy, we can see that there is a primary approach done prior to this economy or this market, and that is the traditional top down approach to building a company culture around a founder's values and. pretty ineffective in platform companies regardless of how worthy the values are and kind of a good example of that is the demise of Lyft's signature driver fish bump which you know Lyft you may have heard of and you may not know about this because it's something that was in the early days of Lyft when passengers were welcomed by drivers they were told to welcome them with a fist bump and passengers were told to sit in the front seat, with the intention behind this being you would create a culture for lift drivers and passengers that there's a lot more of a social element as a part of their service, and that's a you know a, a greater benefit as opposed to their competitor, like Uber or a taxi cab. But uh, in addition to the fist bump and front seat arrangement, uh, they were designated to set lift aside as you know, better and different really quite had the opposite result. And it wasn't really offering people the ability to foster a rewarding community environment. I think it's more or less based off of their first year data and feedback. It was, if anything, making people more uncomfortable and less natural in their right setting. So while one could argue this type of culture building can be beneficial in a traditional company when applying it to something like a independent worker based company where you don't know who you're getting into the front seat with and you may not want to bump a stranger or, or have, you know, all this automatic social interaction or close proximity with somebody that you have really no no connection to other than via their company platform. So I would argue that in peer-to-peer networks such as that, the model results in a disaster. So, like that example with the fist bump, the, and for, you know, shotgun also upfront with your driver, that's no longer the case in how a Lyft operates. That traditional top-down approach that they were using the culture was certainly as a result the central aggregator of enterprise value for this company, but it's no longer you know, the way that they're deriving from the value chain because they realize their value is being in a platform that is connecting people. It is not about necessarily differentiating themselves via some sort of culture because, again, it is really hard to control and implement and efficiently and effectively get it to operate from an independent worker, rideshare, share share-economy standpoint. Now when it looks to companies that are fully facing the market, that is something like Uber or Airbnb, ZRBO. they are getting this value and it's a very extremely high amount of value as a say from a value chain where they are serving as a network space. And these platform companies will be again Those applications are what they are basically selling or they are basically selling as a service, not necessarily a product. But these applications then go and connect to the platform defining the customer experience and provide them with whatever service that another individual in the vicinity would like to provide. So the sharing economy presents a very new paradigm that you know, competitors in a share economy market should reinvent not just the way that value is being created and delivered, but also the ways that you're effectively building culture within an industry or within a business. And so, like you saw with the Lyft example, it is not effective or efficient to follow those traditional methods of building corporate culture now again although businesses governments and consumers alike may be also again unhappy and criticizing these disruptive models because they do often persist it is true however that you know these companies in the sharing economy need to coordinate the supply and demand of resources which means they are working to develop an extremely large user base and that is not only vital, but it's essential to their success, because by, that is their only way to survive. By establishing strong user bases, instead of physically expanding their platforms and turning down their to entry, these companies are capable of establishing a high level of success and profitability, which they have continued to do over and over since. Next, we are going to look at political factors. Now, as a result of Growing polarization and controversy about the lack of government regulation or oversight of the emerging industry has really caused the independent contractor market to experience a lot of significantly reactionary developments this past last summer, which signifies a time where the public's perception of this sharing economies current infrastructure is very susceptible to taking major financial losses or being prone to misinformation and sways by media, which as a result could cause major financial losses on that end and as a result of federal collections to a massive government oversight or a new future regulation becoming an obstacle in the future following the initial major investments into the infrastructures of the sharing economy, in um, the independent workforce, gig economies are, you know, relatively new and are growing rapidly. Therefore, new policy issues are still emerging, and so we don't know if some of these relatively short-term but relatively large financial investments into the gig sharing economy, if they will. Help or carry greater risk than anticipated in the future due to these, you know, potentially implemented legislations or policies that look at regulating the industry. Because as of right now, it's such a newly emerging market that part of its key issues is that there's just unwritten code on these behaviors. And this type of sharing with the independent workforce, Growth is also creating lots of eminent risk for change in policy. So, Therefore, in my (laughs) key issues, we don't know all of the potential outcomes for the market because it is so new and fresh, and there is not as close of another market to look at to for referencing. In my opinion, there are three key issues that are politically involved and are politically affected by the polarization of the United States currently, and those would be the key issues of potential worker exploitation, the benefits, whether that's specifically those you know ben- benefits should be mandated or portable, and then lastly would be the legal classification of workers, which is extremely important and has caused a lot of traction in the news in the the recent news cycles. So as a first matter, exploitation of gig workers may be a potential issue after all because unlike traditional employees, gig workers usually cannot form unions or bargain collectively under labor law. So firstly this would be a major issue if Uber or any other intermediary site managed to achieve a more or less monopoly power, i.e. if it became so dominant that it really is immune to competition in the labor market, which arguably you could say without lists in the market, that would be the reality. and secondly, as the independent workforce has grown, there has been a growing push to mandate the benefits for these workers that are possible. You know, these benefits are not greater than that of what you'd expect. They are actually also demanded to the fee comparable to those offered to traditional employees. However, at the same time, you know, it's a double edged, edged sword and definitely a two sided issue and others have been pushing for policies to make benefits more portable, which would allow workers to take their benefits with them as they move, use these benefits when workers participate in independent work, which, you know, may enhance labor market flexibility, which is one of the greatest things that we have seen come from the market sharing economy in recent years is this newfound flexibility for workers to make their own schedule, work for themselves, Mm -hmm. use their own assets, to earn extra supplementary income. So, you know, in conclusion, it's just one topic of contention regarding gig jobs that I think has really pulled the political sphere's attention. Um, And it's just that classification, again, of workers and whether or not they are employees are independent contractors, and based on what specific requirements. Because when, as we've seen also ramping up in recent months, litigation is becoming more increasingly involved with worker misclassification allegations, and those are extremely complicated um, cases that require careful analysis of these distinctions between an independent worker and an employee, and what those classifications are, and they're more crucial for for different and certain types of workers than others, but in my opinion, it's really the most concerning aspect of this issue uh, because it really provides firms with the possibility to change their business strategies to avoid any potential threat that they might foresee of having to have independent workers be classified as employees and thus have them be responsible for the benefits and extra costs that incurring employees and their plans and benefits would include. As well as, you know, the imperfect policies or laws not yet being written or legislated will also pose a serious threat to how business operations are handled in order to Allow employees to have the proper benefits they deserve for the work they are putting in. And, you know, as the recent political buzz surrounding these issues increased, we saw the most recent example in the campaigning for and passing of the California Proposition 22, which made clear that it's really not that hard to envision a scenario where companies like Uber. from the passage of a law that allows them to continue to operate on the most cost-effective hiring or employment operation system, which means they really are allowing to classify their employees as independent contractors and are exempt from classifying them as employees because of the law they help through donations, political support, heavy campaigning, and it truly has caused a significant impact in the state of California, which, again, points to the significant threat in the future of vastly shifting dynamics in this marketplace. Overall, like I said, as, as a result, this worked for Uber. Their support for the ballot initiative on um, that California Proposition 22, it paid off for them by reducing their overall costs, as they are under the independent contractor classification, not providing benefits, et cetera, to their employees, and they most definitely are going to see that in their financial in their financial benefits at the end of the year. about the influencing social factors on the sharing economy. Now, although the sharing economy has witnessed rapid expansion in the past decade, it definitely has yet to the kind of equitable and fair welfare gains that all participants deserve. Instead, it has produced unchecked externalities to unintended negative consequences. With the development of technology being one of their major drivers for the sharing economy's explosion and growth, there has also been witnesses in the case of Ooh. Uber that perhaps Technology is an enabler of its media and smartphones have also increasingly become accessible and are resulting in better access to information among consumers and kind of enabling them to interact more with these types of markets via different platforms on the internet or via websites or web services. And it allows and enables users to unearth and promptly embrace products or services in the economy that were otherwise being underutilized. So there's, you know, trying to find benefits that have also been outlined as the motivations for, you know, the company's behaviors, and that would include motivators such as the company's desire to enhance accessibility to cities and to open up more businesses and increase research and attention in the sharing economy overall. Um, but because there's little information regarding motivations that affect you know, day-to-day consumers' participation or day-to-day workers slash suppliers' participation in the economy, um, we have more or less a holistic multitude of personal reasons that there are participants in the economy, and that would be reasons such as monetary reasoning, like saving money, moral reasoning, like wanting to support your community, to engage with your community, or kind of you know, work from a more environmental angle that is looking to work with sustainable practices in your everyday life, or simply just altruism, which is truly just for the sake of doing good for other people and as well as just social and hedonic motives which would be just participating in the community and bonding which as you all know especially after the year in lockdown with the pandemic how important that is for all of us. Surveying the history of the technology involved in creating the sharing it is imperative to look at first what the current definition of the sharing economy is by the standards of the U.S. Commerce Department, which focuses on four main details that define companies in a crowdsourcing slash sharing economy, which they have labeled as digital matching terms, and this includes... The use of IT systems on the web with web-based services to facilitate peer-to-peer transactions. Uh, The use of user rating systems to maintain quality across platforms, which will eventually create trust between users, as well as providing workers maintaining uh, the, the ability to maintain flexible working hours if they are in a matching form system, as well as you know, just the basic tool and a- tools and assets used to create the services that they are providing. Which means, like in an Uber driver situation, the car and the actual ride is going to be provided by the individual providing the service on the staff, which would be the identified worker and Uber as the Platform would just be providing the tools and assets for that individual to create and provide that service where it is being demanded. Now, the sharing economy itself has also undergone a remarkable transformation in the last two decades with new innovations driving it consistently. And there has been just within the last decade exponentially a new drive to collaborate with others and push possibilities even further, which wouldn't be feasible to do without this, you know, kind of cross-cultural technological collaboration and effort. So it wouldn't really be feasible for businesses to adopt the sharing economy if they weren't also encouraged to do so by other outside forces certainly so you know specifically what those forces look like is the force of the innovation and development of personal technology services and what we mean when we say personal technology services is something like a mobile device and the internet which has become extremely much more widely available in different areas across the world, which has enabled sharing economy platforms to create new niche markets and make better use of underutilized assets. So this kind of in of itself goes by reducing the search and transaction costs. The sharing economy then will unlock these underutilized resources through cheaper and more accessible options for consumers. So then, kind of as a result, this crowdsourcing economy and the companies within it are both kind of developed and working in the developing and developed world to provide convenient solutions that are being demanded in those varying locations with varying needs. And they're doing so on both large and small scales to You know, kind of coordinate problems amongst strangers by offering services like housing, transportation, healthcare, agriculture, and much, much more. Which, you know, when even hearing those out loud, you think that those are just such core tenets of our ability to survive and live as human beings. Which really also just kind of points to the pervasiveness of these kind of shared crowdsourcing gig economies and their Infrastructures as we move into the 21st century. So, when you hear the word crowdsourcing or sharing economy, what do you think? To be quite honest, when I first heard those words, I wasn't really entirely sure what it was referencing, but I sort of understood the idea of sharing assets in the terms of sharing rides or sharing basic commodities that we tend to need and would feel comfortable sharing from a stranger. However, there's a little bit more to it than that. So when we look at sharing economies or crowdsourcing economies, they are pretty much identifiable based off of their structure, and it also refers to, um, you know, a newly emerging economic model, and it's one that shifts the traditional model's focus from ownership to a model with top prioritization being the access to assets or resources. So, you know, what does that actually mean? And in simple terms, this means the economy's niche competitive advantage comes from their industry's ability to evade typical production issues or, you know, complications with supply and demand chains, and, you know, because they're not operating – you know, fully as both a supply and demand um, mediator in terms of production of goods. They just have business operations contingent on the ownership or production of assets by others. And all they simply are doing is having to provide them with the structure of a marketplace based off of connections and information. So this alternative business structure of the sharing economy itself is really just um, an adaptation to the exponentially growing population and can also be strongly correlated to the increasing demand for consumerism we see in the world today, and just specifically in the U.S. So kind of overarchingly today, when we look at the crowdsourcing economy, it's clear that its model still maintains its original top prioritization of access to, rather than ownership of fundamental assets or services, which you know has resulted in companies in varying market sectors to meet this growing demand of resources uh, while also effectively conserving the depleted assets that are already in the market. by utilizing said resources already in circulation, which kind of in today's world, which is ever important, it allows them to be extremely efficient in eliminating their financial or physical waste and consumption, while also providing room for flexibility on behalf of the companies in regards to their processes. So these attributes of the crowdsourcing economy have created major success for top players. And companies with exponential successes and growth since the creation and evolution of the sharing economy have earned their market statuses using like differing structures of this, you know, share economy or share economy. Um, however, as a relatively new Established market, it's fairly easy to identify that the critical business decisions made by these major players in this market uh, have brought them success by differentiating themselves from their own industry competitors. But you know, regardless of the top company-specific crowdsourcing business models, their kind of inherent primary focus as a as a group would be. That they inevitably look to capture consumer demands effectively by investing in, you know, a critical position in the collaborative consumption market, which means they are going to try to take a position that leverages a business's operations as, you know, vital to the market sector or the market sector's ability to meet the needs and expectations of that and of the individuals that comprise the supply and demand chain in their industry. So, you know, in simple terms, that means that you are the required middleman to connect suppliers from customers or those who are demanding your services or products with a hefty or sometimes a not-so-hefty in, in the form of non-profit companies fee for the middleman. Good morning and welcome along for the ride. My name is Emily Glavin, and I'll be your host for today's episode. A little bit of background information about me. I am a current junior at Santa Clara University in California, where I currently live in Silicon Valley. There, I am studying a finance degree with a minor in international business. And that kind of is due to my growing interest in breaking into the tech and business industry. So another little kind of fun fact about me, I am definitely somebody who could talk your ear off forever if you let me. But for the purposes of today's episode, I will be keeping it to just about 20 minutes. And in that time period, we will be discussing the history of the increasingly pervasive sharing economy and the way in which ubiquitous tech giants like Uber or Airbnb have successfully matched service providers with customers and truly transformed essential industries like transportation and lodging in essentially unprecedented ways with consequentially uh unprecedented impact.